Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, August 17, 2014. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. The share ID for Friday, August 15th, is 6768. 6768. This morning, A Vision for You presents Step 9, Repairing the Damage. We're focusing on Step 9 this morning. Made direct amends wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Steps 1 through 3 put us in the right relationship with our higher power, a relationship where now our higher power, not us, is to be the director. Steps 4 through 7 put us in the right relationship with ourselves, removing those defects which block the access to our higher power. Now we're ready for steps 8 and 9, both of which give us an opportunity to live in harmony with our fellow human beings. We go to those we've harmed, acknowledge the harm specifically, take responsibility for our part, and clean up the wreckage, repairing the damage. This morning, we have four recovered compulsive overeaters who will share their experience with step nine. Our panelists include Esther C. from Canada, Rick B., residing in Massachusetts, Susie K. from Maine, and Marcella M., also from Massachusetts. And let's get started this morning with panelist number one, Esther C. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Esther C. from Canada, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, guys. Today we are sharing about step nine, making amends. So before I begin, I just want to orient us as to where we are in the step process, which actually um, uh, Leah did so beautifully. I'm sure many of you have had the experience when you walk into one of these huge super malls and there's this directory and you're looking for the red dot that says you are here. So where are we when we're at step nine? So when I came into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous at the end of my rope, dying and desperate, Another compulsive overeater, somebody in whom the problem had been solved, cracked open the big book with me. In step one, I identified my problem, that I was a compulsive overeater. In step two, I came to another conclusion, and that was that a higher power could solve my problem. And in step three, I made a decision to live according to the will of that higher power, because otherwise, how could I expect that higher power to solve my problem? So now I was in a right relationship with my higher power. He's in charge and not me. And this was followed by steps four, five, six, and seven, where I identified which of the character defects were blocking me from this power and, you know, adopting a new way of thinking to reduce these character defects one day at a time. So now I'm in a right relationship with myself. And here we are at steps eight and nine. They give me the possibility to live in harmony with everybody else in the world. I have the opportunity now to set things right with, with all the people I've harmed, so I could truly live absently, serene, and free. And to me, that's what being recovered is all about. So in step eight, with the guidance of another recovered compulsive overeater, we decided who needed amends and how and when to do them. The big book does a beautiful job of explaining how to go about making these amends. 
so that we aren't creating new harms in the process. And there's about eight pages in the big book devoted to advising us uh, how to handle the ninth step amends. So it's pretty clear that this is an important step and one that could be easily easily mishandled, easily misunderstood. The AA 12 and 12 opens with the line, good judgment, a careful sense of timing, courage and prudence. These are the qualities we need when we take step nine. And in addition to that, the big book reminds us that we should be sensible, tactful, considerate and humble without being servant scraping. So that's quite a tall order. And it's a good thing that at this point, I start to get uh, some of my brains back when I did the steps. So I, I had different types of experiences with amends. Some of them were easy and more straightforward. Others more difficult. Other than more interesting. So I'll, I'll tell you about some of them. Um, you know, and what new levels of understanding opened up for me from doing them. You know, this, obviously, in this short you know time frame that we have, it wouldn't be possible to talk about all the different types of amends that I had to do, but some of them were most meaningful to me. When I uh, made amends and cleaning up the past, I basically faced faced every part of my life where I've hurt others. So once I clean that up, I don't have any more regrets about my past behavior. I have done my part, and this allows me to live comfortably without guilt about what I've done and without the worry of what if somebody finds out and when I live comfortably and serenely, I don't have that unsettled feeling inside of me. You know that feeling that only a container of ice cream could wash away? Now, obviously, the more damage that I did or the closer someone was to me, the more difficult the amends was for me. So I did some of the easier ones first. Um, one thing that was a, a great harm that I did, you, you know, I, I had, a, I had a, a big mouth, which I used to shoot off on many occasions. So wherever I remembered specific things I said to others, I called them up or wherever possible, I spoke to them in person and, you know, if they live nearby and then I cleaned that up or, you know, if I had to pay back previous employees for using their supplies for personal use or using work time for personal matters, those were also easy. And the reason that some um, some of these ones were easier because oftentimes the harm was not that severe and sometimes the other party didn't even remember the incident I was referring to. So these type of men's were usually met with some people even complimenting me. Uh, they're very generous. They said, wow, that's so special that you're apologizing or willing to pay or whatever. So doing the easy ones first was a good prep for the more difficult ones ahead. Um, as I said, when it came time to make amends to close family members, just thinking about approaching them brought me to tears. I was so full of remorse over my behavior. In a matter of a couple of months, which is about the time it took me to do the step, I went from constantly complaining about all of them to realizing that I was the problem. I was the manufacturer of my own misery, the big book says, and not only that, I made most of them miserable as well. And I had been doing this for years, you know, even decades. So I was fortunate that my amends were well received by family members, you know, parents, siblings, etc. Some told me that I was a bit strange and they thought this was a kind of a coin thing to do, but otherwise they all went well. And the relief that I felt was greater than expected. And you cannot imagine the load I felt being lifted, um, the freedom that I felt, or maybe you cannot imagine it because you've done this step as well. As I mentioned earlier, I did a lot of uh, damage with speech, a lot of gossip, and that's really hard to make amends for. I I didn't think I it's appropriate to run around to people saying, you know what I said about you? I feel really bad. 
because that would just create more harm. Sometimes I was able to approach the person I usually spoke to, you know, the listener of the gossip, and I tried wherever possible to retract my words, maybe clarify, make things better. And I would certainly add that the reason I spoke that way was because of self-centeredness, you know, the way it manifests itself. But an interesting opportunity came about with regards to men for gossip. You know, I was always aware of an organization that promotes speech, you know, proper speech, speech that's free of gossip and other insensitivities. But first, I figured, you know, I'm making a donation to support their work, and wouldn't that be a nice way to make amends for all the gossip I spoke? But And, and I did do that. But it really inside, I felt that simply sending a check in the mail wouldn't somehow be enough to rectify all the, you know, the ripples effect of all the hurt that I've done to people by being nasty and gossiping. So um, after sending out that first check, I prayed for guidance in the matter, and I and asked my higher power that if there was something else I should be doing, if he would show me, give me the right thought or action. And sure enough, um, a couple of years later, this opportunity came about when this organization was trying to promote their ideas within a children's educational video, and they were looking for families to host greeting of this video and, you know, invite children to come and watch. So I jumped at that opportunity, and even though it took a bit of work on my part because I had to recruit all these kids to come, I thought that this was the right way to make amends. So there was my higher power working in my life, bringing an opportunity for me to, you know, to clean out the past. I also want to say a couple words about living amends. I don't know when and why this term came into use. My understanding of what this is comes from the big book. On page 77, the big book says, but this, meaning the ninth step, is not an end in itself. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and to the people about us. So the reason I'm cleaning up the past, other than the fact that it, it feels good to do so and it's the right thing, is because once I'm free of the guilt of the past, I'll, I'll, better, I'll be better able to serve God and everybody around me. I'm not shutting the door of the past in the words of the big book, but I'm stepping out of that way of living and into a new way of living. So living amends for me, especially when it comes to those people that I'm closest to, means to be constantly mindful of where I went wrong and not to go down that road again, right? I clean up the past by living differently from now on. I've heard someone use the parable of the rear view mirror versus the windshield. When I'm driving, the rear view mirror allows me to see what's behind me because I need that information, right, information about what's behind me in order to move forward safely. But the windshield is much larger in comparison because my main focus is on where I should be going and what I should be doing now. So remember I was telling you about my big mouth. You know, I've heard a lot of people with my speech. For me, that's how my self-centeredness, one of the ways, expressed itself. Um, I was surely self-centered in other ways too, but but this was a big thing for me. So, you know, and I, I used to brag a lot. I I would share information about things and other people that I had no permission to share, criticized a lot, you know, speeched, you know, pontificated, told everyone all the opinions about everything. And, and of course, they were usually the opposite of whatever anyone else in the room was thinking. You know, the kind of person you don't like to invite to your parties. <laughs> anyway, so even after I recovered, I, I still kept doing those things, you know, and then regretting them and then doing 10 steps and making amends. And I would think, here we go again. And then Again, over time, God planted some good ideas in my mind. 
because I decided I've got to change the way I do things now so I don't have to keep going back and making those amends. So one thing that I, I decided to do, I don't know how this came to me, is that if there were certain social situations that breed these type of discussions where I would go on and on, that I could choose to avoid them for a while or to limit um, how much I, time I spend there. Or another idea that I tried to implement, again, when I was having trouble um, controlling what I say and then hurting people in the process, is I would sort of be conscious of the fact that my tongue is behind my teeth and my lips, right, two big barriers. When I, and so when I would speak, I would sort of take the time, like part my lips, part my teeth, sort of it would give, put a little uh, gap between whatever came to my mind and then speaking. Um, now, you know, when I'm in a discussion, I try at least once in the discussion to say, I don't know, not to feel that I always have to, you know, that every discussion with another person, whether it's in a crowd or one-on-one, is, is meant to showcase my, you know, intelligence or my charm or anything like that. Um, I learned to say, I don't know, because I don't know why they got divorced. I don't know why they spend so much money on their wedding. Or I don't know why he says this or does that. Just, I don't know. And and even though I still stumble in this area, but I could say that things are definitely getting much better. Um, and I find that I don't have to <laughs> come home full of regrets and pick up the phone and say, remember I said that last night? You know, I'm finding that slowly, one day at a time, that's starting to change for me. Um, to me, living amends as far as relationships are concerned means to relate to people on their terms wherever possible, to the best of my ability, right, one day at a time. Because not only was I hurtful to family members, but I often kept them at arm's length. You know, so for example, living amends to my parents doesn't only require that I speak respectfully and kindly to them, but it also means I do whatever I can to make them happy, right, on their terms. So call them if they like to be called, include them in what's going on in my life and my kids' life. For other relatives or friends, it could mean giving them their space if they don't appreciate that kind of interest. In my mind, I'm always trying to think, how can I serve you, God, and others in this relationship? Not what can I get out of the relationship. What can I get out of the relationship? It's not what's in it for me. So if Aunt Martha wants me to ask her about her arthritis, because to her it means I care, if I ask her about her arthritis, if Uncle Joe doesn't want me to talk about his bad back because he doesn't want to focus on it, so I don't ask him about, you know, which doctors he's seen. Did your sister, little sister feel like she's always left out? Well, mine sure did. And now I, I include her in my life more, and I can ask her opinion about things and show her that she's important to me, show her that I respect her thinking. So, again, wherever possible, one day at a time, on their terms, I, I try to do, you know, do my best, and that's, to me, the, my way of rectifying the past by changing the way I behave from now on. So why does this have to be on their terms? Because I'm here to serve God and others, right? My relationship with you is about you, not about me. As one AA used to say, and I read it in a, in a book, whether I love you is my business, but whether or not you love me is not my business, right? My business is to, to see what I could give to you. I also found that the immense process scotch-guarded my close family relationships. What do I mean by that? You know that scotch guard spray is something that you'd spray on fabrics, you know, on furniture. So when something spills, it doesn't get absorbed and it's easier to clean up. So same thing here when I did my nine-step amends and I owned up to my behavior. And in my amends, I always admitted that it was due to selfishness, to wanting life my way and wanting to run the show. So now if I ever go back to that type of behavior with those same people, which can happen, certainly happens, I could own up to, own up to it immediately and express my regrets before it settles, so to speak, you know, like a stain. And I also found that being upfront and honest this way made things between me and others less um, adversarial. So it's not, I don't know, to hurt you, 
but it's more I'm trying my best to live a God-centered life, but I get off track sometimes. And this brings me to the final amends, which is amends I made to myself. So I know that some people do make amends to themselves and some people don't. My sponsor's way was that she did, so I also did it. But I, I didn't make a very big deal out of it. I simply listed the opportunities that I missed and the damage I did to myself when I was blocked from God and in the food all the years. And to me, living amends to myself means that I reflect on that list from time to time or whenever these situations come up. And I remind myself that I now live on a different basis, a God-centered one. So I have to follow this new blueprint for living. I already know the, the outcome of the other way of living. Every time I read the Nine Step Promises on page 83 and 84, I feel that they are being fulfilled in my life. But it's not a checklist I pulled out after doing my Nine Step and said, okay, is that this stuff coming true for me? But every time I go to the big book, whether it's with a, a sponsee or, you know, in a big book study such as this one on the phone, and we get to the promises, I think to myself, it's really true. These promises really do come true. And once again, I'm amazed at how our, there, our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change by following a simple set of instructions. And that's why I'm grateful. Thank you, God. I'm grateful that I'm a compulsive reader, a grateful, recovered compulsive reader. Thank you, and I'll pass. Thank you, Esther C. Panelist number two, Rick B. Good morning. Thank you. My name is Rick. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in Massachusetts. Um, thanks, Esther. That was good. And um, I think to tell a little bit of my story about step nine, um, I also have to look at the other steps. And in particular, you know, I'll start at step two. Step two says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And it's interesting the way that step is written where it says, came to believe, and it indicates that there's a process going on. So step two isn't something you do, and certainly nothing you do in a vacuum between steps one and three. It indicates a process. And... Um, my story about step nine ties in directly with with that step. And step three tells us that um, we became willing to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And that also um, ties in. So those two steps, they, they don't happen, they, they're not something you do and then move on. Those are two steps that that go through the entire process and continue for the rest of your life. So, um, you know, I had a I, I had a sponsor. I was involved in a big book study group, and um, you know, we we had some pretty um, you know we had a routine that the meeting went through and some kind of traditional ways that. We worked with sponsors, and, um, you know, I did my inventory, gave it away in step five, and got to step eight, made a list, and discussed with him, you know, about making those amends. And what he said to me was, um, 
I suggest that um, you know you do something that's that you think you'll be fairly successful with, um, not necessarily an easy amend, but something that you know you think will go reasonably well. Well, um, I the, one of the things that was going on in my life at the time was my mother, who was also an alcoholic, um, as I I am I am too, was uh, not doing so well, and she was um, you know putting quite a bit of a burden on the family, and my sister was carrying a great deal of that burden. And my sister invited her to come live with her, which uh, was a was a big deal because that really put her put her out there and, and um, caused a lot of sacrifice on her part. But she figured it would be easier for my mother to live with her than for her to have to go check on her. So um, during that time, when my mother was ill, and then uh, when she ended up living with my sister. So there was a period of about four or five years where my mother was just not well. Some of the times she was living at home, she was hospitalized for a while, and she ended up with my sister. She was not well. Um, she was... Uh, all those defects of character that we talk about came out in her, and she caused quite a bit of, quite a bit of uh, pain for the family, but mostly for my sister, because my sister was the closest one to her geographically, and she ended up, um, you know, bearing lots of the burden. So I realized that I had neglected a lot of my responsibilities in that area, and I needed to I needed to make amends for my sister. I also knew I needed to make amends to my mother, and. I remember discussing with my sponsor about making amends to my mother, and I said, I don't know if that's something I'm going to be able to do. And um, I remember he said to me, well, sometimes those uh, those amends are, are done at the graveside after, after that person is gone. Many times that's the way it looks. That's the way it happens. And I, and I don't think he was suggesting that I wait but I think it was just part of the discussion. But I figured, oh, boy, that's good. I, I don't have to do this. I can wait on this one. And I kind of fully intended on not, not doing that, not making amends to my mother and just let it go. But uh, anyway, to get back to the story, I needed to make amends to my sister for the um, – for the basically the neglect I, I put on her and for not being there with her with all the uh, the burdens she took on with my mother, and I needed to show up. I needed to show up and help out. So uh, there was a, a snowy day, and I had the day off, and I decided to take a ride over there and went over to her house, and it worked out perfect. There was nobody home, just her. She was cleaning her kitchen. I went in, had a cup of coffee, and started talking to her, and I told her about the program I was working. I told her about Overeaters Anonymous. I told her about the 12 Steps. I brought a big book with me. And she knew I was an alcoholic. She knew I went to AA, but she didn't know too much about the steps. And I, I told her about the steps and how, uh, you know, we were required or uh, it was suggested 
that we make amends to people that we have harmed. And I remember she said to me, well, can't you just say that you did that stuff, tell those people you did it and lie to them and move on? And I, I thought it was very funny. Um, I said, I said, yeah, I could do that, but that's not why I'm here. And she had, you know, this kind of um, conception of the 12 steps, like the Seinfeld episode where George was telling the alcoholic to, to, to say I'm sorry and make amends and stuff like that. And, you know, she knew better than that, but that's kind of the way she put it. So I went on to tell her about the program. I told her about how I was working the steps. I told her I needed to be there, and I owed her an apology for not being there for to help her with the work that she had done with my mother and the burden she had put on. And she she said, well, you don't have to apologize. You've, you've done enough. And she, we both knew that I hadn't. But I think she said that just to, um, you know, kind of deflect the fact that we were going through kind of a, a sensitive conversation. And I think she was also surprised because that's not the type of conversation we had in our family. I didn't talk to my, my brother and sister like that. I never talked to my mother like that, our father like that. We never really get into that uh, that that touchy-feely type of conversation. So, you know, I was able to tell her that I wasn't I wasn't doing enough and I wasn't there for her. And she really appreciated it. Um, I think she was surprised. She was very surprised that she was hearing those kind of words come out of my mouth. Well, um, a while later, I, I, you know, I had made some other amends along the way, but I also knew that I needed to make amends to my mother. And I didn't know how that was going to come up or what that was going to look like. And I, as I said, I even thought of not doing it. But the opportunity came up where my mother, I was visiting with her. She was at my sister's house. She happened to be complaining about my brother, that my brother wasn't there. And I said, Ma, why don't you leave him alone? Why don't you give him a break? He's kind of busy. He's got two little kids. He's got two kids in college. He's a very busy guy. And besides, I have to be here. And she looked at me with this look of bewilderment on her face. Like, what do you mean you have to be here? And she didn't say it, but she asked the question with her eyes and her face. And I, I said, I have to be here because I haven't been the son that I'm supposed to be. I haven't been the brother that I'm supposed to be. I haven't I've let my sister take on the burden of caring for you, of taking care, care for you and doing your errands and whatever else there was to do, and I, I pretty much let her do it. And I just kind of sat in the background and show up once in a while and pretend that I'm I'm helping out, and I haven't done that. And it, 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 the conversation didn't go much further than that, but I was able to tell her that I was left than I was supposed to be. I told her that I had to be there. I admitted that I was letting my sister down and that I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do as a son. And again, you know, the look on her face was like, I can't believe I'm hearing this because this is not the way we talk. And it 
the conversation pretty much ended um, along that those lines. I mean, I shouldn't say the conversation ended, but uh, our discussion about that, we talked about other things. But as I was driving home, I had this, this strange feeling of amazement that I was able to tell my mother that, that I was able to tell her that I, I was less than I was supposed to be, that I wasn't the son that I should have been. And I I just couldn't believe that I had done that. And this feeling kind of came over me that, wow, I, that's not something that I'm usually able to do. And I've never had a conversation quite like that. And I realized that there was something working behind the scenes that I never noticed before. And that was really my first true understanding of how God works in our life. And I, I talked about step two being a process. And this is, this is the process, how, how things work out. Up until that point, I had been an agnostic at best, possibly sometimes claiming to be an atheist, although I might have never really been an atheist. I don't, I don't know. I guess I always thought there might be something out there, but I had no idea what it was. But that day after the conversation, there was a, a few moments of wow that came over me that this is what they're talking about. This is what they're talking about God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. This is, this, is, this is what I've been hearing about for years but never could put my finger on it because I had never experienced it. And it was that just subtle revelation to me that there was somebody in the background that was there to help me out. And that's an amazing thing for someone like me who spent more time putting down God and running away from God and bashing people who had God than trying to understand who God was. So it was those steps that enabled me to open up, enabled me to accept that there was a God and to feel his power working in my life. It was very subtle. It was very... Uh, brief, but it was there, and it was just enough to set things in motion that came down a little bit later on. And by realizing that there was a God, I was able to move forward in my spiritual life. I was able to connect with people that had God in their life. I was able to make friends with people that were not shy about talking about God, people that I, I wouldn't have associated in the past, people that I would just kind of maybe say nice things to and then move along. I was able to talk about God. I was able to ask other people about God. I was able to learn about God. I was able to study about God. I met people that um, did uh, daily devotionals. I got involved with them. I got involved in uh, a daily study with them. And I, 
I talk to people that had God in their life. And I still do that today. And it's a total 180-degree turnaround from that uh, agnostic slash atheist when I started working the steps. And that's what these steps do. They enable us to get in contact with that higher power. And everybody has those pivotal moments along the way where they can, where they can say where God was working for them. And I can point to, you know, several places. Now, when I look at hindsight, as they were occurring, I wasn't, I wasn't as aware of what was going on. But it was that point when I was making those amends, when I was able to get honest, and I was able to tell people that I let them down when God revealed himself to me. And it was, uh, it was remarkable. And I always tell that story when I speak about Step 9 because that is what this program is about. It's about getting in touch with God. Lack of power was our dilemma. And by working those steps, I was able to get in touch with that power. And today, I am more in touch than ever before, um, seeking more understanding of God, and um, none of that would have been possible without working those steps. So I like to um, tell people that are confused or not certain about how God works in this program that you're exactly where you're supposed to be right now. The key is to go forward and work those steps. And then at some point, God will reveal himself to you. It, it's not going to happen the same as it happened to me. And it's not going to happen the same as it happened to anybody else. It's going to happen to you in uh, its own special way. So that's, that's, that's my big experience with Step 9. And I encourage everybody to continue through and work those steps to the best of your ability. And if you know if you already have a relationship with God, it's going to grow stronger. If you don't have a relationship with God, He will reveal Himself. So I'll pass with that. Thanks. Thank you, Rick. Now panelist number three, Susie K. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. Good. Good. My name is Susie Kay. I live in Portland, Maine, and I am a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. And it's a, um, an honor to be speaking this morning on Step 9. Um, I haven't shared a lot on the call before, so I wanted to qualify um, uh, why I'm here. I um, have been compu- compulsively overeating since the age of something like six or seven. I used to, you know, eat cookies in the basement hidden away when when I was young. I was a Girl Scout and sold Girl Scout cookies, and my mom would buy tons of them from me, and I probably ate most of them for my family. I stole candy on the way to school. I had milkshakes on my way home from school until I felt sick. I would eat, you know, tortilla chips and 
syrup free lemonade um, before dinner and spoon the, the lemonade, the sugary lemonade syrup out and, and eat that. And I would feel so stuffed by the time I got to the di dinner table. I didn't want to eat it. And then I would just continue that with sugary substances and ice cream after dinner by myself. I really felt isolated, depressed, disconnected. And um, I'm, I'm now, as an adult, I'm 5'7". My weight has ranged from 140 pounds up to 230 pounds. And um, uh, let's see, I've tried Weight Watchers. I tried um, something called the 9-Day Wonder Diet when I was in high school. I've tried exercising more to lose weight and control my eating. Uh, one of my standby favorite uh, methods is to eat an abstinent breakfast and lunch and maybe an abstinent dinner and then I take out and somehow in my mind like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna gain any weight doing that. Um, I've told myself that a half gallon of ice cream is the caloric equivalent of one yoga class and I've tried eating all natural foods, non refined non refined sugar foods and you know but but usually what happens is I end up eating high-fat foods that don't have sugar in them. I came into OA in the spring of 2008. I hung out and heard a lot of things that made sense to me, but I didn't get abstinent until six months later. And at that point, I maintained my abstinence for almost two years, losing 70 pounds um, with spotty sponsorship, which was my fault. Um, and step work until I found myself alone in my house on a sunny summer afternoon with curtains drawn um, in possession of one of my favorite sugar substances. And I had no defense against it, and I was back out again. Um, I, I then tried other 12-step programs for food addiction. I kept trying to control my food intake by myself, but it didn't work or wouldn't work for long, maybe four or five days. I finally sought treatment and went to a five-day program. I detoxed. I did some very intensive work around my powerlessness with food. I came home. I had a good plan that um, I had drawn up while I was, had been in that treatment, and I have stuck with it pretty much um, since then. It's now been 15 months. Um, I practice rigorous honesty around my food intake and any changes to committed food. I keep my connection to God open and clear through practice of steps 10 and 11. I've always had sponsorship. I always include um, another person in my food plans for the day. And I try to deal with my resentments, fears, selfishness, dishonesty as quickly as I can. Um, so that's why how I came to be here. And um, the ninth step for me has been a really powerful step. And I'd, I'd like to say off the bat that every amends that I've made has been received quite positively by those who I've made them to, um, at least neutrally. Um, sometimes people didn't even think I'd done anything wrong or they couldn't remember. But um, I just want to say to those folks who are looking ahead to doing their amends that if you get good guidance from a sponsor, if you are not creating more harm by making your amends, um, if you come with God, with your higher power, 
and um, have carefully scripted your amends to be brief and to the point, to own up to your part, to um, to be honest about it. That I think, you know, nine times out of ten, or or maybe almost ten times out of ten, you're going to have a good experience with this, and it's really going to bring you a lot of great things. Um, Making amends has brought me great humility. It has brought me peace. It has brought me joy. Um, And I would say that the... I remember writing out my first amends, which was to my mom. Um, And and my sponsor asked me to to draft it. And then we were going to discuss it. And I have not had an easy relationship with my mom. Um, uh, there's been some distance. I know that she loves me. I love her as well. I'm grateful to her. But, you know, there have been some issues, and I have judged her, and I have been unkind to her. And what blew me away when I was writing out those amends to her is that I felt this great wave of gratitude come over me for her. Um, it was really amazing. Um and I don't think I could have reached that place without having done the other steps, without having grown a, rela- a relationship with my higher power. And I have found that in doing, in making amends, that it does bring me, it, 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 it shifts the whole focus of how I see this person in my life who I'm making the amends to. Um, and I've also seen this with sponsees who I've worked with, that that the amends-making process is very deep work of owning up to to, to our faults um, in relationships and, and actions that we took that have harmed others, that it, it brings this amazing amount of gratitude. Um, so um, I would have to say that um, the amends that I made to my, to my mom was probably, uh, despite the fact that I got some great rewards immediately, um, it was also very difficult and caused a lot of fear. And I was only able to make that amends with the strong and sure and steady guidance of a sponsor. And I have heard some stories in the rooms of people who went out and made amends without consulting their sponsor. And I do not recommend it. Um, I really do not recommend it. I'm really grateful that I have received very good guidance and that my sponsors have taught me that we we don't let each other go out there without really discussing this and pounding it out and looking at it from different angles and making sure it's worded in a way that we are not going to create more harm and that we are going to as honestly as possible be able to own up what we have done. Um, so my mom was was difficult and then um, more recently I have, have made amends to businesses from whom I stole mostly food, but when I was younger, makeup, um, but it's been mostly food that I have stolen. And... Um, just before I tell you just a little bit about that, I just looking at the ninth step in the big book, um, page 76, it talks about how faith without works is dead. 
And I thought, well, the opposite of dead is living. So what I'm looking for... Hello? Hello? Continue, Hello? Susie. Right, okay, thank you. Um, so, so what I'm looking for is, as I was saying, that the, page 76, it says, faith without works is dead. And so I thought, well, the opposite of dead is living. And what I'm looking for is faith with works is living. And I need to have a living program. Um, uh, throughout the ninth step, it talks about this need for action and, 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 and having a living, breathing, active program in my life. I cannot just have faith. I cannot just have a belief in a higher power. Um, on page 83, it says a spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. So I really need a, a living program. And again, on page 76, it says we have something like, I'm paraphrasing, we agreed at the beginning to go to any lengths for victory over alcohol. So I have to go to any lengths for victory over my compulsive overeating. I just have to do that. And um, when, you know, I've had a sponsor help me who, um, or sponsors who have helped demonstrate for me the necessity of doing this, and also that they have made similar amends to me, that they have made amends to their mom, that they have made amends to businesses that they have stolen from, that they, and that they have come out on the other side and they are okay. Um, they're, they're better than okay. They're recovered. They are living a life that is connected to God, to their higher power, and um, that things are good. And we really, I think we really need, I personally really needed this to overcome my fear and some of these amends. Um, I'll just touch briefly on um, the, uh, the, the, the last amends I have made, which have been to businesses that I have stolen from. And um, it's interesting, I've been in another 12-step fellowship um, a, uh, a bit longer than OA, and, um, and I, I went through the steps and I identified what amends to make, and I never... I never um, identified to my sponsor that I had amends to make for stealing food. I was aware of it. I can remember doing it as a kid. I remember walking to school with a friend, and we used to stop in at a corner shop, and we might buy some candy, but we also stole some. Both of us did. Um, and um, more recently as an adult, and in my compulsive overeating, I've stolen from salad bars and candy bar, candy like like places you could get candy at kind of a serve-yourself sort of situation. I've done it in, um, you know, I did it just a couple of years ago. Um, I've stolen from candy shops. I've, um, I've stolen money from my parents when I was young so that I could buy food. Um, and it's really interesting that none of this came up in my other 12-step program work. And I can't explain it. I, I came to my, um, uh, I went back to the, my sponsor in that program and I said, did I ever tell you that I did this stuff? And she said, no, you never told me this. And um, so um, it's really interesting that I it just was dropped from that amends making. But 
in my OA program and with my OA sponsor, I was able to tackle these amends. And knowing that she had done the same and that she had come out of the other side in good shape and recovered and at peace. And um, so she gave me instructions for doing it. And what I did is I determined what I thought was the value of the food that I had stolen. I um, contacted these businesses. Um, I, I called them. I spoke to somebody in charge. And I told them what I had done. Um, and I offered that I would um, be willing to pay for the, for the food I had stolen. Um, I made three of these calls. Um, I was met very positively by two of the managers I spoke with, um, one of whom said something like, keep up the good work. Um, the other one who said, uh, we really appreciate your honesty. Thank you for calling. And the third who um, didn't quite know what to do with me, I think was kind of new, and um, put me on hold for a while and got back on the line. And he said, well, there's nothing we can do about it now. But he said, just make sure you don't do it again. <laughs> and I thought, that's cool. Okay. And then the one I really left hanging out there was to this candy store. Um, and I, I think I've just stolen maybe a couple pieces of candy from them over the years. Um, and I talked at length about my, with my sponsor about doing it. The other thing that happened is I left this one little amends hanging out there. And it just took up all the room in my brain. It just took up all the room, like it was a big elephant sitting in the middle of the room. And um, and um, it, I, I procrastinated and and got more fearful about it. And we kept talking about it. And then I just had to have a deadline. And I think she asked me. She said, "We got to just get this done." And I decided for this one to go in in person. Um, and the other thing I did is I didn't reveal to the shopkeeper that I was in a 12-step in a program for, for compulsive reading. And I think there are two schools of thought which are perhaps both valid as to whether we reveal whether we are in a recovery program or not. But um, that was a really amazing event. I, I went in. It was a rainy day. It was quiet. There wasn't anyone there except for her and me, and I told her what I had done, and I said, I'd like to pay you for the candy I've stolen. And this look of, I can't even describe it, of this woman's face, she just was, she was so happy. She looked and she said, nobody ever does this. Nobody ever does this. Oh, my gosh. And, and she accepted my money, and I, apolog I apologized again, and I left the store. And that was it. And the gift of the ninth step is that I am at peace. I have, um, I, I still have to work my relationship with my higher power, but I have, I have little or nothing blocking it today. I try to keep whatever is blocking it at, uh, away through my 10th and 11th step work on a daily basis. So I hope this has been helpful. Thank you for allowing me to share this morning in our task. Thank you, Susie K. And now, panelist number four, Marcella M. Good morning. Uh, can you hear me, Leah? Yes, thank you. Okay, so my name is Marcella, 
and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Grateful to be in this wonderful day, um, clean as clean and sober, happy, joyous and free, comfortable in my clothes, clothes comfortable in my skin. Um, I don't feel remorse, guilt or shame. Um, on the contrary, I feel excitement for the new day. I'm not hungry, thank you God, I'm not hungry. I feel calm and serene. And that's that's not me. I know that this is that God is doing something um that I couldn't do for myself because that's not me. I'm an anxious suicidal um addict that cannot tell her right from her left and cannot make a simple decision, let alone um living peace without excess of food or alcohol or pills. So uh, when I first came to this program, I said, well, all of these sounds very interesting. It's even inspiring. But what does that have to do with my problem? And I just couldn't see the connection. I just couldn't see the connection between my behaviors and the problems that I have in all of my relationships and the many conceptions that I had about institutions and principles and the very fixed idea that I had about what um, somebody's relationship with God should be, and I just didn't see the connection. So, so, but I, but I had nowhere else to go, and and I started this process, and so very patiently, you know, a team of sponsors because I'm difficult. You don't want to know that, but I'm very difficult. Um, my first person wouldn't take me for too long, and the second, and the third, and the fourth, I tried six in total, and finally. Finally, I, I was ready to be teachable. So I took one, two, three, and, and the revelation about those three steps, because I was born in a very religious family, the notion and even the experience of a God was not new to me. But um, the revelation that I came out with is that God is seriously interested in my relationship with food. I was not that surprised because I belong to a tradition in which there are certain foods that we just never touch. Um, so there were a, a, a number of, of foods that I have never tried in my life because I was raised without them. But but the notion that God is sincerely interested in um, how I perceive my body, my size, my weight, um, if I'm hungry or not, if I derive satisfaction for my meals or not, that continues to be a revelation. And I, and 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 that 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 was my trust. God is very interested in my food plan in um, whether I'm abstinent or not, whether I'm working my steps so that I can leave um, abstinent and clean and sober for the day of today. God has a lot of interest. It impacts my destiny. It impacts the relationships with others. It impacts the fact whether I live well today. That continues to be a revelation. Okay, so then I tackle four and five with the help of people, and, and then I, you know, it's like opening my closet and see what fits, what doesn't fit, and then I say, oh, so it seems to me that I'm a master of shame and fear. When things don't go my way, my immediate MO is hide and run away or freeze and I just I just be consumed with self centered shame and be consumed with self centered fear. That is the way that I operate. Not everybody operates that way because everybody's different. Um some people that are in my 
very little group of very intimate close friends are a combo of anger fear. <laughs> so as you can imagine, you know, somebody who whose emos is immediate rage dances very well with somebody somebody whose immediate emo is um, immediate fear. So, but we were aware of it, and we tackle the problems as they come, and we have each other, and we trust each other. So, so that's the way this works for me today. So then I tackle six and seven, and I say, imagine a world in which I didn't have to live immersed in a bubble of shame and fear. How would you look? How would it look like? So I'm a very visual person, and and sometimes I my my sponsors suggested me well. Show me the, the YouTube video of you living without shame and fear. The very first thing that popped into my mind is I'll wear color. I'll stop wearing black with vertical lines forever and ever. I promise myself that. I will never wear black again. I'm done with shame and fear. So, so well, it seems trivial and it seems like it's not important, but it's a huge thing. It is a huge thing. It's just, it's just saying quit and just goodbye. If shame and fear had served me for something good, I would still live in shame and fear. But it doesn't. It almost kills me. So what is the point, right? So in 8 and 9, why did I feel shame? Well, that's because I didn't behave very well. Um, I thought I was not hurting anybody with my shame and fear and my, my freeze act and, you know, my I'm out of here, never see me again. Um, Act and I just never grew roots anywhere. I've lived in three countries. Um, I've shaved. I never stay, you know, long enough in 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 a job in any relationship. I I I quickly build a, a group of friends, but then I just leave and and wouldn't leave like a return address or a, I change my email. I change my phone number. I even changed my legal name many times, so just to make sure that you never ever see me again. And why? It's not because I don't want to see you again. Well, yeah, I want to see you. I don't want to see you again. But it's because I feel such a level of shame and such a level of fear for what your reaction might be that I just don't, I just want to give me a dark closet with a big bag of my favorite food and a bottle of wine and let me just disappear into oblivion. And that's the way I used to live my life until this program. So... I came to the steps and I, you know, I, I was writing my, my fourth step and I said, gee, the people that I'm resentful, I guess, there are not too many, but the people that I resent, and I'll never forgive them because these things you just did are the kind of things that you just never forgive. So I walk into this room with a sense of entitlement and a conviction that the universe owed me a big apology. God owed me a huge explanation for starters, right? Um, because, you know, because I'm, I'm just, I'm just exotic, I'm different. So God owed me a huge explanation. Then, um, all my troubles, um, started 500 years ago, uh, with inquisition. So I felt like a flawless victim of horrific circumstances. And I certainly didn't have any role in it. I was, I had, I have, I'm, I'm innocent. I didn't do it. So very swiftly and effectively, especially effectively, I was able to turn from flawless victim with a little food problem on the side to an active participant in the way my day is going to look like today. 
And that is a wonderful feel. I just don't even have words to describe the wonderful feeling of empowerment and hope and optimism that this way of life brings us. Um, so my very first command was uh, paying my medical bills. You know, you can imagine that being the active addict that I used to be, my health was always in shambles. You know, it was, it was one crisis to another, to another, to another. Anorexia, bulimia, morbidly obesity in just one year. And, you know, my, my diets that I created in which you can have unlimited white wine and a peel, why not, right, and a little spinach on the side. And so I always, I was, I was always in psychotic episodes, you know, landing in the emergency hospital, and, and I owed money. I owed medical bills. So now here I am, clean, abstinent, and sober, and recovered, and shaking, shaking, right, um, out of fear and shame, surprise, surprise making my first phone call to figure out how much I owe and, and figure out a plan to pay it back. So um, so my sponsor is aware that I'm doing this. We both designed a conversation where we heard the conversation many times. Um, my 10-step my, my bodies, you know, I'm aware that I'm making the phone call. And, and one of them is sitting next to me, and I make the phone call. My heart is pounding. I'm shaking in my socks. I... I my face is white with fear and dread. And I make that dreadful phone call. And I say, I owe this money, and I don't have it all to pay it right now. Would you be so kind to figure out a payment plan for me? So so she says, oh, sure. And she, she looks for my account, and, and then he says, well, if you pay me half of it today, we'll call it quick. So I say, I'll call you back. I consult with my sponsor and my step, my tested voice, and I say, go for it, take it, because that's what it says in the big book. It says, we make the best arrangements we can. I call them, I pay my bill, and the magic happens. I feel tall, I feel skinny, I feel beautiful, I feel a level of honor and dignity that no amount of chocolate ever gave me. And with that sense of um, triumph, I say, where's my next amend? So if you want this kind of result, uh, just follow what the big book says. Um, the way that I was uh, prepared to make my amend was by prayer. Um, the prayers, the prayer amends are beautifully described in page 552. 552, I strongly suggest that paragraph to to pray for every single person in your fourth list, every single institution, every single principle that you were resentful against. Um, 552, pray continuously. Pray without believing. Pray faking it. Pray mumbling through your teeth. Just fake that you're praying. Pray. So after a while, and the big book says right there, you know, in the stories, it says it takes two weeks to pray, to be ready for an amend. Then write a letter. Write a letter which is going to turn a sketch, you know, and how to, pre- how to present. Because you know how many times I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again? Nobody believes me anymore. I, I lost total credibility. So that doesn't run anymore. So I write a letter, and, and I come to people that I have offended or hurt, and, I, and they see that I walk with a document. So that conveys that, um, that I spend some thoughtful time, you know, sitting and consulting with others to talk to this person. And I said, no, I'm sorry, because that's an apology. An apology is not an amend. An amend is saying, 
I was wrong. And this is my awareness in which exactly the way that I was wrong and I harmed you. Now, is there any other way that I harmed you that I'm unaware of? Because that happens to me, you know, as an active addict. I'm so consumed with how many pounds I weigh and what size I'm wearing that I don't have, I just, I don't even, I'm not aware of you. I don't know your feelings. I don't know your plan. I don't know your agenda. I don't know your schedule. And frankly, I don't care because I'm too busy thinking, how am I going to lose this weight? So, so when I go to people and I say, is there any other way in which I offended you? Can, is there any way I can make it right? And then I listen and I, I probably I take notes too. So then it says, um, most of us owe money. So there's a financial element. Most of us, I had the most compelling conversation yesterday with my AA friend. How much money do you think we owe to the universe? Well, it's not only the food that we overate. That was not, uh, frankly, it was not ours. If we're overeating, that, that food doesn't belong to us. Um, then all the gimmicks that I tried to lose the weight and keep it lost, hundreds and hundreds and all that time that I didn't make any money because I was too busy trying to lose the weight. So if you add all of that, it's just a lot of money that we owe to the universe. How can I make it right? How can I possibly make it right now? So as you see, you know, when I walk this program and say in the world, the universe owes me, I say, oh, wait a second. It's the other way around. I owe an explanation to the God that created me. I owe explanation to the tradition in which I was born. I owe an explanation to all the money that I had in my hands and that I misused and all the potential that I didn't fulfill because I just didn't work. I didn't create. I didn't express myself. So so I owe something. Then the other kind of amends are the face-to-face amends. You know, there are certain people that I had to show up and a text or an email or a phone call won't do. I have to see them face to face and look at them into the eye. But don't forget, by these, I have prayed for that person. So I am no, I know that I don't have the monopoly on the defects of character or spiritual disease. It's not everybody. If you're a creature and not a creator, you're spiritually sick. So I approach the person with compassion, tolerance, and love. The love that the program of, of the program and the, the fellowships have have granted me already. So I approach people and I look at them in the eye and I, I, I present my document and I say, this is the way that it seems to me that I harmed you. Would you be so kind to listen? And let me tell you, some people won't. Some people say, just get out of here and leave me alone. And and that's the way it's going to be. But there are some harms that can never be righted. So as the previous speaker said, just don't do it again. Just live your life in a different way. But that could happen. Unless I'm completely ready, 100% to be ready to be kicked out of the office, as the big book says, I'm not ready to make amends. And if I'm not ready to make amends, I'm very capable of hurting another person by trying to make amends. So if I'm not ready to receive a very harsh response from the people that I hurt, just don't even bother. Keep praying until I'm ready. I'm completely willing to receive. The most difficult amends prove to be the living amends because that is the daily effort, the daily conscious effort to walk my walk in a different way, to be a different person, to behave like a recovered compulsive overeater, to bring joy to the world, 
to bring hope to the fellows that are still suffering, inside of the way, outside of the way. People who have not even known where that there is such a thing as 12 steps of recovery. They're leaving them. To be kind, to be tolerant, to be quiet, if I, it's not my business to be talking. To wait until I'm asked to talk. To give the Lord tolerance and patience and kindness and, and frankly, like, like the good intention to judge everybody with a good intent, with a, with a, with a pink, you know, um, eyeglasses others, to give others what I, what I hope, what I want. At the end of the day, what is what I really want? What was I looking in my box of chocolates? What was I hoping to find at the end of my, my bottle of wine? Connection. Connection. I never, I thought that I was very religious because I would spend an hour every day, you know, reading my book of prayers, and, 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 and I ate a certain way, and I had certain ritual objects in my house, and and I and I fasted on a certain day, and, and I thought I was very religious. It never occurred to me that the living expression of the God of my ancestors is people. That's the living expression. So you know how we have a, when we study physics, we have a continuum of time-space? This program has revealed to me that there is a continuum, God fellowship. And you cannot see the difference between one and another. We know that because at the end, in the last chapter that gives you fellowship a name, a vision for you, it says um, that um, there is a very effective substitute for alcohol, a very effective substitute for alcohol. And when I was reading that paragraph, I said, yeah, of course, God. No, no, the substitute for, for alcohol is the fellowship. You know that page where he says, am I going to, am I doomed to live a life um, where I'm going to be gloom and boring and, and stupid and I'm just going to try my, carry my dry salad from place to place while everybody's having phone, fun. Is that going to be my, my destiny? Is that, where's the, where's the sufficient substitute for the endless amount of food that I used to eat and derive pleasure from? And the substitute is the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Life will mean something at last. And it does. What a wonderful destiny. What a wonderful way to live. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Marcella. And thank you to all the panelists. Contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording. We're now going to open the floor for questions that you'd like to direct to our panelists, and you can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute. Any questions related to step 9? Hello? Yes, go ahead. Hi, uh, my name is Sharona. I'm speaking from Israel. I'm uh, hopefully recovered compulsive overeater, and I would like to ask a question, a question to the panelists uh, regarding to step nine. Um, I, actually, I I've been to the I, I I've learned the big book, and I'm in the process uh, approximately one year and eight months, and 
I have only one amend left with my mother, and I really don't know how to do it. And I pray every day, and you know, in my morning meditation, to and I ask God to replace my resentment and my anger toward her into love and. And I wish her all the best, you know, health, uh, prosperity, and happiness, and well-being. And it's and it's really it's getting better, and it's it got better, you know. It was much worse than than it is than it is now. But I I feel it, I can't do it, you know. I I still can't find the way how to do it in the perfect way. And I really want to to change the resentment. I want to. You know, to be transformed, you know, in a way that I can really be recovered and pass the message on and live on a daily basis, uh, 10, 11, and 12, and leave those, uh, live the solution on a daily basis and take these principles and carry it out, you know, in my life towards my family and everyone I meet. And I would like to hear uh, suggestions. Thank you for the question. Just to clarify, uh, is it how to relieve yourself of the resentment towards your mother, or is it how to implement Step Nine specifically? It's. It's. I think it might. You know, it's two parts. The the first part is you know how you know I I take this. You know, I take this. I take the directions of the big book and I implement it and I go to my mother and I admit my she's not a simple woman and I just tell her you know mother I was wrong A B C D and I know she will blame me if whatever she would want and I don't know she will say things that might hurt me and I okay. don't know how to call Thank you. you know okay thank you very much for the question and uh, any panelists like to come forward to respond here. Yes, go ahead, please. Um, uh, hang on a second. I'm just going to plug my... Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm, yes. I'm here. I'm on the line. Okay, great. I'm okay. sorry. Yes, go um, ahead, please, and respond, well, my, panel. Thank you. My, my question... Um, well, my thoughts are: I hope that you are you are receiving the guidance of a sponsor. You're working with a sponsor on this to craft your amends, and um, and I would um, I think also that you that you need to take action. You need to get it behind you. Um, it's not helping to procrastinate, and I know that from personal experience. It just the fear just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and and if um, your sponsor doesn't have experience making um, amends to, sounds like your mom is a difficult person, then maybe you need to reach out to other people, uh, recovered compulsive readers and program, and find out how they made amends to difficult people. Um, this is about cleaning up our side of the street. This is about owning up to the, the harms we have done, regardless of what the other person has what we perceive the other person has done to us. So I'd say definitely get the guidance of a sponsor. Do this as quickly as you can. Just get it over with. Do it. And um, and just know that 
you are completely powerless over her response. And her response does not matter. What matters is your willingness to make the amends and your outreach to her to do that. So as my boss says at work, get her done. I'll pass. Thank you, Susie. Any other panelists like to respond to Sharona's question? Yeah, it's Rick. I'd like to just say um, you might be uh, overthinking this, and I would encourage you to just get a conversation going with your mother. Um, You don't necessarily have to introduce yourself as making amends, but get a conversation going and try to guide it into those areas that you need to talk to her about and see if you can uh, get the ball rolling that way. And as far as the resentments, um, don't expect the resentments to go away first. What I found is the resentments went away after. Once I was able to make amends, then I was able to forgive her, and the resentments went away. So um, just try to get the ball rolling, and don't, uh, don't overthink it. Thanks. I'll pass. Thank you, Rick. And thank you, Sharona, for the question. Anyone else with a question for our panelists this morning regarding Step 9? Hello. Yes. yes. My name my name is Deanna and I'm from suburb of Illinois and um I have a question. I'm a recovering uh compulsive reader. I made amends to my son. Um I'm also a recovering alcoholic regarding my food, which is my struggle although I am abstinent today, um, is that I make amends to my son. I feel that anger that I I need to do more, and I don't know what it is. I don't know what I need to do, and yes, I have talked to my sponsor, and uh, although I am looking for one, but it's like I've cleaned up my side of the street, and it gets, he does not believe in 12-step programs, um, I, I need to do more. I had to ask him to leave the house when he was 17 and a half because of alcohol-related behavior. And at this point, he's uh, made a name for himself financially. He does well, and he wants to help everybody. But I, when we're together, there's those barbs. And I'm thinking... So either it's me that I'm still feeling shame or guilt or I need to say more. I don't know what I need to do. Thank you, Deanna. Let's see what our panelists can share on that. Any panelists like to speak to Deanna's concern and question, please? This is Esther. Thank you, Esther. Go ahead. 
I'm not sure that I understood the question. Is there uh, an outcome that you're expecting from your amends with your son? I I believe that many people talk about having favorable outcomes and relationships deepening and getting better, but I don't know if that's going to be the case with uh, with everybody that we've made amends to. Perhaps you could uh, clarify. Um, also, it doesn't mean when once I've made amends to members of the family, it doesn't mean they'll never have resentments towards them again because life happens. Of course, I know how to clean those up in you know in daily tenth step work. Um, and of course, if I've made any kind of harm again, I'll go back and clean that up as well. So I'm not sure uh, what you're asking. Is what you're asking? Why is uh, your relationship not improving after the amends? So I'll just offer that little bit. Maybe that's helpful for you. Pass. Thank you, Esther. And Deanna, would you like to clarify your question briefly? All right. Well, perhaps this can be taken up uh, with a one-on-one conversation another time. Any other questions related to Step 9 for our panelists this morning? Specific questions, please. Leah? Yes. Hello? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is Shawna once again. I would like to ask another question. That, um, okay, very specific question, okay. please. About my behavior, when I will do this step nine with my mother, I, I really have the fear that my behavior will not change towards her. And it won't be a recovered behavior. And how can I... Like, how can I be sure, or how can, how can I, how will I know that it will happen to me too with this step sign, this amend? Um, okay, thank you. I would like to hear experience of other people. Thank you very much. Panelists, anyone like to respond to this question from Sharona? How does she know that her behavior, her current behavior, will be different from her previous behavior in this relationship. This is Esther again. Yes, go ahead, Esther. Thanks. Hi. So as I mentioned, when I obviously once I make amends, it won't be the last time that I'll um, say or do something, um, you know, that that harms anybody, but. I start to notice patterns. So if there's certain, let's say, with a parent or a family member, a close family member, if I if I if there's certain patterns that repeat themselves, if I if, if I know there's topics that they bring up that set off certain types of conversation, um, you know, I, I prepare myself ahead of time for that possibility. Um, if there's certain situations, um, again, I don't know the specifics of your situation, but for example. Um, you know, when I speak to my parents on the telephone, I make sure to turn off all, all the call waitings and the cell phones because, you know, as Europeans, they, they, it disturbs them, all the ringing while I'm on the phone with them. 
So that's part of the way I make amends to them, that they like undivided attention, and I, I, I provide that to the best of my ability. Um, I mentioned again earlier that uh, if I know certain situations will cause me to act or to speak in a certain way, I prepare myself ahead of time, um, certain reminders, certain cues that when the conversation starts to go a certain way that I could divert it or, or, or distract it. I mean, it's hard to speak to your specific situation, but you're going to start to notice um, or maybe you should have already noticed patterns of behavior um, and reactions with you and your mother, and you will do what you can um, to avoid them or change them or react differently from now on. Um, um, you know, if, uh, again, I, I don't specifically, I'm trying to think of my own example. Very often, um, my uh, my mother would say to me about, you know, some way my children are acting. Look at what, you know, this kid did or this kid did. And before, that would set off, you know, resentment on my part and arguments or, 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 or cost of comments. But today I could say, you know, Ma, you're right. Today, kids, what could you do? And that just sort of conversation fizzled out. It didn't become the stormy discussion um, that it used to become. So I gave her what she wanted, which is validation for, you know, her opinion about the way, you know, she sees things. So, you know, with a little living and a little guidance, you know, with other recovered people, you could come up with ideas of how not to keep doing what you're doing and so you're not constantly making amends um, to your mother. And that's all I have. With that, I'll pass. Hi, this is Susie. I'll just... Thank you, Esther. Yes, go ahead, please. Thank you. Uh, um, I would say in regards to my mom... Um, been really interesting having gone through the amends process with her um, and perhaps this will sound odd but um, you know there are there are there are harms that she caused me particularly in my childhood but um, and there are things that she does and ways that she acts and lives that I am not crazy about um, and I do find that having done this work and made amends to her, addressed the amends that I needed to make with her, that I'm better able to um, accept her as she is through probably all the work I'm doing in the steps. Sometimes I have some difficulty with it, and I just try to call God in and ask for assistance, ask me to be peaceful about it, just ask me to be receptive. The other thing about the amends process that's been really interesting with her is it, it, it separates me from her more. Like, this is who I am. I am a woman. I'm a compulsive overeater in recovery. I need to own up to these, these things I've done to her. And it, and it I, I don't know, uh, you know, I'd say I come from somewhat of a dysfunctional family and and it kind of saying what I need to say, it separates me from her. She is a different person. Yes, she brought me into this world. Yes, she's my mom. Yes, this is a, one of the most important formative relationships in our, our lives as human beings. But I am different. And um, I have to say that I do, I do love my mother. I do appreciate her. She you know, has an amazing memory. She, my dad is um, 
is, has a, a, a very serious disease, and she's been a primary caregiver for him. Um, uh, you know, my parents uh, moved, they followed me here to Maine, and um, I'm really grateful they're nearby so I don't have to get on a plane when my sisters, like my sisters do, to come see them. I can just get in my car and see them. Um, but the one thing I've discovered and that I'm at peace at, at with is that, you know, if I had a choice to be friends with my mom, I probably wouldn't be friends with her. And that feels okay to me. Um, and and maybe, um, Sharona, that needs to be a place where you get that this is, there's a lot to be grateful for in this person, but you know, knowing who you are and becoming clearer and closer to your higher power and becoming clearer and, and living more of your true self as you have, you know, shed your addiction, that um, that you can be at peace with the fact that this may not be your favorite person in the world. And and I can say that now. I do say it on occasion. Um, I, I, you know, that there's a lot to appreciate about her, but you know, I'm, you know, it's just, it's just the way I feel. And so I own the way I feel. That that, that doesn't mean that I go to her um, and, and I'm spiteful. I try to appreciate her as she is, who she is, and knowing full well that, that I have the power to make changes in my life through this program, through the work I've done in this program. So thank you. I'll pass Thank you, Esther and Susie, for responding to Sharona's question. Anyone else with a question to Step 9 this morning? Hello, Leia. Yes. Hi, it's Carol, compulsive overeater recovering. Thank you. Can I speak? Hi, Carol. Go ahead with your question. Yeah, thank you, panel. That was wonderful. Um, I'm ready uh, and beginning to make my living amends uh, to my family, my friends, my community, society, uh, for being such an isolator, basically, and opting out of lots of things. Um, but I'm beginning to get a bit... Um, some days I'm very desperate to set everything right in a whole week or within the day and wind up exhausted. Or then I be, I sort of sit back and go, oh, I'll never be enough. It's not going to be no- enough. I'm not going to change. So, panel... Um, what did any of you do to, to get your living amends going at home, in the workplace, or in the community? That's my question, please. Thank you, Carol. Panelists? Hi, it's Esther. Thank you. Hi, Carol. That's a great question. I actually didn't look at it at such a big picture at that at that time. You know, in the morning meditation, I the big book says we consider our plans for the day, um, and we ask God to guide our our thinking. So I wasn't interacting with everybody in my family, society at large, all the people I've ever known on a daily basis. I would just take each day as it came and look at the day and say, what. You know, what are my plans for the day? What what kind of challenges could I expect? You know, God help me, you know, by giving me the, the right ideas and um, keep me centered, you know, according to your will. 
and then I just just went through the day. I didn't, um, and and of course I made mistakes many times. But I found that as time went on, I made less and less of those mistakes. Less and less, I had to go back and clean up what I did. But I didn't look at it in such a big picture because that would have seemed unmanageable to me um, if I would have to now think of um, rectifying what you were saying. This being isolating in every area with everyone all the time, it would have seemed too unmanageable. It never even occurred to me to do it that way. Again, I just uh, just did one day at a time. I'll, I'll pass. Marcella, can I, can I ask Please. that question? Yes. Um, that's an excellent question, and, and I found myself yesterday saying to a friend, uh, drop the sense of urgency. Just uh, my suggestion would be go back to step three. Step three applies for every single aspect of our life, including the timing of our recovery. Like I know the 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 the, the promises are suggested after the ninth step, but we're not in charge. The promises can happen on step ten, or step eleven, or step twelve, or when we start sponsoring others, which I strongly suggest, and you walk with them in their amends. So what I like about step nine is it allows me to live in the process of step nine. You know, the big book says that I am going to make new mistakes. Hopefully they're new and not the old ones, right? So so I'll make mistakes again and again because 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 I'm just like who I am. I mean of course I'll stumble. But now the difference now is that I know what to do. So I identify with a sense of urgency, but this is a process, and it's a process that lasts for the rest of your life. So how do we know if the amends that we're doing are right, so to speak? They're right because just look at your ass, look at your food. Are you clean? Do you have the cravings? Do you have um, this longing for more food? Is your abstinence comfortable? If your abstinence is comfortable after an amend, you're doing it perfectly right for the purpose of this process, which is, frankly, recovering from compulsive overeaters. And that's the difference between this exercise and religion or psychotherapy. We're not doing this in that context. We're doing this because we're addicts. We're doing this to remain alive. And if we have already chosen life over death by addiction, why don't choose forgiveness and peace and tranquility, right? Why do we want to keep splitting our hair in two without our back? Thank you, Marcella, and thank you, Carol, for the question. Any other questions related to Step 9 this morning before we close? Maggie? Maggie, go ahead. Yes, I wonder if I... Um, how appropriate or useful or important is it to explain or include the fact that one is involved in 12-step recovery in the process of making the amends? Uh, I hope that that covers my, um, explains what I, I just wanted to, anyway. Any thank you, Meg. Helpful. Thank you. Yes, that's clear. Thank you. Panelists? This is Marcella again. Please go ahead. This is an excellent question. Excellent, because once you disclose that you're an addict in need for recovery, you cannot close that information again. 
So um, I would, you know, take each each case as, as it comes and consult with my sponsor and my group of, of fellow travelers and and say, just what, ponder on the consequences of, the, of breaking anonymity while making a name. Sometimes it is you know, relevant, especially if these, these people have been directly affected by my active alcoholism or compulsive overeating, but sometimes it is in the best interest of everybody that I don't disclose that fact. So that's an excellent question because one, once I disclose that I'm an addict, I cannot close that door again. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else, any other panelists like to respond to Maggie's question? Yes, Susie. Rick first and then Susie, please. That's, that is a good question. I liked uh, Marcella's answer. Um, you know, when, when you're talking about family members and things like that, they know that we're addicts, <clears throat> or they, they usually do. So I think it's important to tell them that you're working the program so they know you're doing something about your addiction. Uh, they might know you're going to meetings and whatever, but in my case, uh, they didn't know what was involved. They, they, my sister thought you'd just show up at the meeting. So I think, yes, that's very important to let them know that you're working a program related to your addiction, to your overeating, and I think it, it adds a bit of more, more um, um, urgency, more seriousness to your case when you're when you're making amends that you, you let them know that this is the reason, this is what they've taught me to do. Um, and certainly uh, it is good advice if you're dealing with employers or things of that nature to use caution when disclosing your addiction. Thanks. Thank you. Rick, Susie, please. Yes. Um it is. It's a really good question. It. Um, I have discussed it quite a bit um, with other folks um, who listen to this call, other recovered people, and um, I would say for myself that um, yes, I would agree with Rick that you know our family members are aware that we are compulsive readers um, most of the time, um, and. So that may be a given. Um, and I, I don't think there's any right or wrong answer to it. I don't think it's a black and white thing. I think it can be appropriate for other people. Um, I guess for myself, it has just evolved. And whatever um, this last amends I made to the candy store, I was discussing with my sponsor, and I was... I was wondering about the same thing that you are, that, you know, gee, do do I need to tell this can't this shopkeeper that I'm a compulsive reader? And in that case, she asked me to do some soul searching and um, um just what felt right in my gut about about it. And I you know, this is somebody I did not know personally. It was somebody I had stolen from. Um, and it was not necessary to qualify 
the amends by saying I was a compulsive reader. And it, in that instant, it felt my senses going into it and discussing it with my sponsor and taking quiet time about it, that there was no reason for me to tell her that. Um, and, you know, if I, you know, the likelihood is I'm never going to see her again um, or that we won't remember if we do what each other looks like. I don't think I'm ever going to be in that candy store again, probably. But um, there was no reason to tell her that. What I had done is I had stolen from her. And um, that is the message I had to carry. And, and some guidance I've received has said, you know, if we tell them we're addicted, that uh, we're compulsive reader, that um, we're kind of leaning on it. It's kind of an excuse for what we did. So, um, but I think sometimes if it's to a friend or somebody we care about, I think it, it can be as a basis of explanation for, for why we did. But we have to stay really focused and concise and, 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 and clear about the actual amends, which is not that we're a that, that should not be grounded in the fact that we're a compulsive reader, but that should be grounded in, you know, one or more of our character defects. Um, so that affected that person. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, Susie, and thank you, Maggie, for the question. Thank you to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you to our panelists, Esther C., Rick B., Susie K., Marcella M. Thank you for sharing your experience related to Step 9 with us this morning. And I'm going to close this meeting in the way that we close all our meetings here on A Vision for You, and that's from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only we realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.